Can you please take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 6 in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6. Andre gave me this souvenir from Prague this week. Earlier this week, he gave this to me. Um, very thoughtful of him. No, I'm serious. That's like very thoughtful of him. And, uh, and very meaningful to me. How many of you know who this is or have an idea of... I'm not going to ask you, Steve, because I think you do know. But no, no. How many... Steve, Steve knew him. Yeah, Steve probably knew him. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, John Huss. Okay, this is a representation of John Huss, who was born in, um, uh, he was born in southern Bohemia, which is the present-day Czech Republic, in 1374, and he attended the University of Prague. He was ordained as a priest in 1401 and began pastoring a church called Bethlehem Chapel. Before long, he came across the writings of John Wycliffe, you've heard that name perhaps, uh, who for Huss quickly became a mentor from days past and a, and a wonderful hero of the faith. Like Wycliffe, Huss began to preach, really influenced by Wycliffe, Huss began to preach on the authority of Scripture and on the need for reform amongst the corrupt clergy in the church and on justification of faith or justification by faith in Christ alone, uh, preaching against the indulgences that were being sold by the Catholic Church as a way of pardon for sin. In 1414, it was actually, um, he was asked to come speak up in Constance, Germany at a, at a kind of a, um, what would we call that? Um, say that again? Yeah, um, I don't know what that word is, but uh, <laughs> he, he was, anyway, he was asked to speak some, at this conference, we'll call it a conference. He was asked to speak at this conference, there was a schism in the church, and he was asked to speak at this conference, and he was assured of safe travel to and fro. And while he was there, he was arrested. And by June of 1415, he was condemned as a heretic. His only out was to renounce his Christian convictions, but Huss would not recant. And so literally, uh, as he was burned at the stake, as the flames really literally came up around him and engulfed him, he's said to have said, in the truth of the gospel, which I have written, taught, and preached, I will die today with gladness. And die he did, singing a hymn, a martyr for the Christian faith. One hundred years later, a little-known German monk named Martin Luther would pick up where Huss left off, and he would usher what we now call the Reformation. And I share that with you this morning because I want you to see the progression 
from Wycliffe to Huss to Luther, knowing that none of these men set out to change the world, and none of them knew who would carry the torch when they had passed, or even if the torch would be carried at all. I also share it because in a similar way, though history is very familiar with the Apostle Paul and his missionary endeavors, few realize that perhaps the person who initially influenced Paul's conversion to Christ was a relatively obscure servant in the first century church at Jerusalem known only by his first name, Stephen. We were introduced to Stephen last week, and as we continue in Acts chapter 6 today, we find that by the time we come to the end of this episode in Stephen's life, the only record we have of Stephen biblically, he is being killed for his Christian faith under the approving watch of Saul of Tarsus, who of course became Paul the Apostle. So I want to take this account of Stephen in two parts. The man and the martyr. This week we'll consider the man, Stephen, and then next week, Stephen the martyr. Learning that because faith in Jesus brings fullness of the Holy Spirit, we are assured that God is with us and for us always. Let's read this together. Acts chapter 6. And I want to read the whole of chapter 6. We covered verses 1 through 7 last week. But I want to read those as well just to provide us with some context and to see what's going on. And there are also some clues there about Stephen, the man, that I want you to pick up on. And then we'll look more closely at verses 8 through 15. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Amen. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the time we have this morning in your word. I want to thank you for this man, Stephen. And uh, clearly, what a, what a pivotal role he played in redemption history and in the advance of the gospel. I want to thank you that you've left him for us as an example. And I pray that as we consider this man today, that you would encourage our hearts, enliven our faith, and help us, Lord, to be people of faith, men and women who trust in Jesus, who obey the Lord, and who seek to follow him in every way. And so give us ears to hear your voice today. Give me the uh, ability, would you enable our hearing and my speaking so that uh, when all is said and done, we could say that we have heard from God and we have a word to take with us. Would you do that, we pray, through Christ. Amen. I want you to see that verse uh, 8 begins with the word and, and Stephen. And this word and connects this scene to the previous one, which is important to the overall flow of the book of Acts. In other words, it's important to know that Stephen's story isn't random. It isn't randomly inserted at this point. Just want you to know that it's not a sense that, you know, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is not saying this would be a good place for a story about a martyr. Let's put it here. It's not at all what's going on. Instead, Stephen's ministry and ultimately his martyrdom are intricately, intricately connected to the history Luke is recounting. As we will see, this is a pivot point in Acts. It's a hinge, uh, a hinge on which the door of the gospel swings in that Stephen's death becomes the, defi the defining event. It becomes the defining event that brings intensifying persecution to the church and thus propels the church out from the city of Jerusalem into Samaria and the world beyond. Stephen's role in this was pivotal in every way. And what we learn about him here is that who he was on the inside affected how he behaved in the presence of others. <clears throat> His private and public lives were consistent. I really believe it's important that we don't gloss over that. For there's no discrepancy between his character and his conduct. 
verse 3, as we read, verse 3 just simply says that Stephen was a man of good repute. The word repute carries the idea of authentication. And it speaks to a person's character, to his reputation. Character is comprised of those inner hallmarks that create dependability. Character is who we are through and through. Character is the word we use to describe the values uh, we hold dear and the virtues that define our lives. The authenticity of our reputation is ultimately in relation to our character. Character is the moral fiber from, uh, the moral fiber within us from which all our conduct emerges. So Stephen here, a man of character, had a good reputation in the church, others in the congregation, when they were thinking about who would we want, a, a person of good repute, others in the congregation esteemed Stephen and essentially authenticated Stephen's Character, his reputation, and thus they chose him to help oversee the care of the widows. It says in verse 5 that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The story is told of, uh, of D.L. Moody. You guys familiar with that name, D.L. Moody? The story is told of D.L. Moody, uh, the American evangelist in the late 1800s, who once shared a conversation with Henry Varley, a British evangelist and a good friend. And it was during the summer, this conversation, during the summer of 1872 in Dublin, Ireland, uh, when the two were, were uh, on a walk together and they were discussing life and ministry together. And Varley said something that Moody couldn't escape. Something so impactful that Moody recorded it in one of his diaries, something so meaningful that it literally, Moody would say, it motivated him for the rest of his life. On that summer day, under the warmth of the Irish sun, Varley simply said, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. He need not be an educated man. He need not be a uniquely talented man. He need not be a man in places of unique influence. He need not be unique in any way, humanly speaking. Rather, he simply needed to be fully and joyfully submitted to God. And from that time on, Moody, by the power of the Holy Spirit, said that he strived to be that kind of man. And although the account here in Acts chapter 6, although it's brief, one gets the impression that Stephen was striving to be that kind of man. Three times, verses 3, 5, and 10 we're told how Stephen was empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. In church, we know that the Spirit then is the same Holy Spirit today, and believers today are, are, are to be similarly filled according 
to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, I wonder, I wonder if it's one of those things we often talk about as Christians, but don't really understand and rarely appropriate personally. And yet, being filled with the Holy Spirit can change your life and the lives of those around you. And so what does it mean to be so filled? I want to start with what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that you acquire something you don't already have. Because if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you already have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Bible says, Do you not know that your body... Uh, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have received from God. So you need not beg and plead for more of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, give me your Spirit. Give me your Spirit. You need not beg and plead for more of the Holy Spirit because you already have the Spirit if indeed you have Christ. Instead, the word used in Ephesians chapter 5 for be filled carries a few distinct, though related, ideas. First, I want you to picture these things. First, it it, it means to be carried along and propelled. Like a boat carried by the wind as it uh, fills the sails of that vessel. Second, it means to be permeated. Uh, the picture that comes to my mind is like uh, taking some food coloring and dropping it in a glass of water, and immediately that color will permeate the entire glass. Third, it means to be ruled by or under the control of. In fact, the word is, is often used in the Gospels to describe a response that completely takes over. Uh, For instance, in in John chapter 16, when Jesus informed the disciples that he was heading to the cross and leaving them soon, it says their hearts filled with sorrow. In other words, in that moment, they were overcome by and under the control of the deep sorrow that flooded their souls. And so these three pictures of being carried along being permeated and under the control of, describe what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But we need to take this one step further, right? And the question now is, how is one so filled? We don't simply want to know what it means. We want to know how it happens in everyday life. And the answer is, it happens by faith. Just as you became a Christian through faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, so also through faith you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, when I buy a toy for one of my kids, the box will sometimes say, batteries not included. But when you received Jesus by faith, the Holy Spirit, the divine source of 
uh, the source of divine presence and power was included in the many uh, blessings of that moment. God came into your life to take up residence and to be your helper and to be your counselor and to be your guide as you follow Jesus. The key then in being filled with the Spirit is to continue in the faith with which you began. Which means continuing to submit the totality of your life to Jesus Christ. It means things like, God, I want you to be the Lord of my marriage. God, I want you to be the Lord of the way I parent. God, I want you to be Lord in the way I I handle my money. God, my material belongings are yours. I want your lordship over all of my material belongings. Lord, in the way I treat people, in the way I respond to people, I want you to be Lord. I want to submit to your rule. And as you do that, as you by faith walk in the lordship of Christ, you are filled by the Holy Spirit. If something other than Jesus is on the throne of my life, then I am not under the day-to-day control of the Spirit of God. So I must yield the throne to Jesus as an expression of my will and by faith draw upon the Spirit within to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which I have been called. Again, it's not about bartering with God for more of the Spirit because you cannot earn God's fullness. Basically, it's about yielding more areas of your life to Jesus because the more you do this, the more fruit of the Spirit you enjoy and experience. The more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the more of these things, the more these things are reproduced in you. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? The Bible says you can be. Right now, today, by faith. It says that if you will follow Jesus, if you will submit and surrender more of your life, more of the facets of your life, more areas in your life, more and more of those things to the Lordship of Christ, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says that Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, meaning that because he was full of faith, because he, entru- because he trusted Jesus and entrusted more of his life to Jesus, he was filled with the Spirit of God. The two go hand in hand, faith and fullness. And I think that's why when others observed Stephen, they observed in him fullness of wisdom and grace and power because the presence of the Spirit of God was just evident in his life. That's who Stephen was on the inside. He was spirit-filled and Christ-centered. On the outside, he was equally spirit-filled, equally Christ-centered, 
And here in this passage, we see him serving in the church and in the community. We need to realize that Stephen was a servant. He was actively serving the church by caring for its widows and actively serving the community by doing great signs and wonders among the people. But I want you to hear this, that furthering the cause of Christ does not begin with doing great things for God. It's not the big things. It begins rather with simple acts of service that emerge from a heart wanting to serve. It begins day by day by walking in the good works that God has prepared for you that day, however small or menial they may appear at first glance. We read of Stephen doing great, apparently miraculous things, but we know he didn't begin that way. He began by faithfully attending to the care of the church's widows. And more than that, he evidently began with other additional acts of service in, of which we know nothing about, but which obviously caught the attention of the congregation and caused the people in the church to recommend Stephen in the first place. Not by doing big things publicly. No, Stephen began behind the scenes serving in seemingly unspectacular ways. You remember the parable of the talents? In that parable, Jesus talks about how uh, servants who received from their master certain talents. Now, a talent in that culture, a talent represented a large sum of money, a very large sum of money, actually about 20 years' wages for the common worker. Huge amount of money. And one servant received five talents, another two talents, another one talent. You know the story. The one with five used what was given him to double the value. Same with the one uh, who received two talents. He too doubled what he was given. But the one with one talent fearful of risking anything, chose instead to bury what was entrusted to him. And when the master returned, this man who did nothing with what was given to him was judged harshly and condemned. But the first two men, to the first two men, he said those words we all long to hear, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were entrusted with little. I will entrust you with much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the essential question Jesus poses with this parable is which of these two servants best represents you? Are you like the first two who uses what God has given you to further His kingdom on earth? Or are you like the servant who takes what God has given you yet does nothing of value with it? And I can't help but think that because Stephen 
had proved himself through service in the church, and because he was of good repute, and because he proved faithful in serving those widows well, faithful in the seemingly small things, God entrusted him with even more. <clears throat> Way back in the early 80s, it's all, it's hard, actually it's kind of hard to believe, that's almost 40 years ago, there was a Maranatha song that made the rounds is called Make Me a Servant. You guys know it? Uncomplicated and, and very, very simple. The words just went like this. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be Make me a servant. Make me a servant. Make me a servant today. When I became a Christian in the late 80s, I remember singing that song in church when the song leader asked us if we meant it. And he wasn't being rude or antagonistic. He just wanted us to know that if we're really asking God to make us servants, don't be surprised when He calls us to serve. And don't underestimate the power of service done unto Christ. Though at first appointed to help care for the widows of that congregation... In effect, Stephen became a powerful force for the advance of the gospel. He didn't set out to change history. He's like Wycliffe or Huss or Luther in that way. He had, nothing, he had no idea what would become of him or who might carry the torch after him. And yet God was pleased to take Stephen's service and use it as a catalyst in the church and in the community to extend the gospel's reach out from Jerusalem into Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the known world at the time. He who was faithful with little was entrusted with much. Hear this, church. You never know what God will do with you and through you until you're willing to serve like that. You'll never know what God will do with you and through you until you're willing to serve like that. Full of divine grace and power, Stephen was now doing great things among the people. We aren't told what these signs and wonders entailed, but they were having a positive effect, at least on some of the people. Others, however, took offense and rose up against Stephen. They were Hellenist, Greek-speaking Jews like himself, not from the church, of course, but from the Jewish synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, now, there may have been only this one, there only one such synagogue that included all of those listed in verse 9, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, or each of these groups could have represented uh, separate synagogues. 
There's just some ambiguity there. Either way, these people began disputing with Stephen and quickly realized they bit off more than they chew, than they can chew. Because Stephen spoke with a force that just could not be stopped. And they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they did what many people do who cannot stand on their own merit. They began a smear campaign. They enlisted others to discredit Stephen's testimony, verse 11. They agitated people against Stephen, including the elders and authorities of Jerusalem, verse 12. They arrested Stephen and brought him by force before the Jewish council, and they planted false witnesses who accused Stephen of blaspheming God, verses 13 and 14. They seethed this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. To the Jews, you see, the temple was God's house and the law was God's will. And so to speak against either was to blaspheme God and to do so in the name of Jesus of Nazareth by God. That was even worse. Stephen spoke of Jesus. He taught that Jesus He taught what Jesus taught, that Jesus is the new temple, that He is the utter fulfillment of the law. And sadly, they took as blasphemy what Stephen presented as hope, that Jesus is the one for whom the people had been longing all along. And then we come to this verse at the end, verse 15. which I think provides a statement that perfectly summarizes who Stephen was. I want you to picture him there appearing before the council, his reputation tarnished, his words twisted and taken out of context. He's being accused of a crime he didn't commit, blasphemy, that carries with it the sentence of death. How would he respond to the pressure of that moment? How would you? When everything Stephen was doing came under fire and Stephen's life was being weighed in the balance, what would others see in him? And verse 15 is the answer. Verse 15 is hope. Verse 15 is the assurance we all need. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I love that. In chapter 4, remember, Peter and John appeared before the council together. In chapter 5, the apostles appeared collectively. And thus, in both chapters 4 and 5, they found moral support in one another. They were in it together. There was a sense of we're in this together. But here in chapter 6, Stephen stands alone. The dispute apparently uh, escalated so quickly, it seems that no one was there to stand with him. 
Sometimes we have to take our stand. You have to take your stand and stand alone. Although you're never really alone. Not, not really alone. There's an entire community of faith behind you. A great cloud of witnesses, we're told. By the time this scene draws to close and Stephen is killed, others in the church will likewise rise to share in his sufferings as persecution intensifies to a whole new level. So although Stephen was there alone, he was not alone. He was a valued member of the church that stood with him in spirit. And in addition to this, though, the Spirit himself had so filled Stephen that even as he stood before the council with no one by his side, God was with him. And God was so powerfully present that Stephen's face shone like that of an angel. Was it like Moses when Moses came down Mount Sinai uh, just radiating the glory of God? Was it like Jesus at his transfiguration when his face shone like the sun? Maybe. Whatever it was, It was the divine presence assuring Stephen that God was there, that God was with him, and that God was for him. And if you are a Christian, God is with you, and God is for you as well. Beloved, I want you to hear this. When a person truly trusts in Jesus and thus discovers the infilling of the Holy Spirit, there is nowhere you can go and nothing you can do and nothing that that can be done to you to keep you from the love of God in Christ. And God has so loved us that He gave His only Son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is the one we've been longing for all along because He has come to us to seek us and to save us, we who are lost without Him. He lived among us, He died for us, and rose from the dead so that whoever places trust in Him would not perish in their sins, but receive everlasting life with God. 